Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs, sponsored by Ingersoll Tillage. Today's episode on the most niched up of specialty equipment manufacturers is a fascinating story. You'll hear how this farmer slash inventor reluctantly jumped into the equipment manufacturing business all by himself. He did so only because the major OEMs were sitting on his invention while the patent clock was ticking. This interview was also fun for me personally, as I've had a front row seat to the banter between today's interviewee and my dad, Frank, for a long time now. These two have enjoyed a decades-long comedy routine of sorts in the ag conference circuit with sharp-tongued barbs, jokes, and wagers at each other's expense. But you turn off the mics and you'll hear words from both that neither would say publicly. This is an inspiring story of on-farm inventiveness and the gut checks that a farmer turned manufacturer in a paradigm-shifting environment, no less, has to go through. We're gonna get right into it today. So here we go, today's podcast. Mike Lessiter with Lessiter Media Farm Equipment, No-Till Farmer. I'm Marion Calmer, and I am the owner of Calmer Farms. I'm the owner of Calmer's Ag Research Center, an independent research center, and also Calmer Cornheads. Interesting thing is we've done some of this before at your place in Alpha. You know, oh, yeah, with your dad, your dad and you were down. And so you've got some notes probably from some of the things that... Remember that piece? This yep. 11. Time flies. God. Six years ago already. Yeah, we were just we were just starting. To, I was just starting to find out what it was like to have a positive checking account. Yeah. <laughs> so this is how this is. <laughs> it, 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 it is amazing what a, what a difference that has in your yeah. attitude when you wake up in the morning. Yeah. In the mid '80s, I started to do on-farm research, which led me to the discovery of a yield advantage in narrow row corn in the mid '90s, which led me to building the world's first 15-inch corn head, which then led me to a residue buildup problem in the late 90s with the onset of BT corn stalks. And then that led me to designing and, and manufacturing the BT chopper stock roll and starting up the company that we now call Calmer Cornheads. To sum it up, we find problems that occur during harvesting and we come up with solutions. And it's mainly based in the, in the corn head area which relates us to the, the residue of the corn stalk and the, the ability to put a lot of yellow ears in the combine, which then is a chain of events, which, which makes it easier for the operator to set the machine and it makes it easier for the machine to get a nice clean sample, which then is a chain of events that gives us a higher quality product that we can export and hopefully will we'll gain us some repeat business down the line somewhere that, that somebody will choose to buy our corn instead of somebody else's. So you're a farmer, you're a, you're a researcher, you're an equipment manufacturer. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, originally I, I had uh, spent some time with Case Corporation and with some of my first inventions, then, then with John Deere for a little while, and ultimately I, I decided that I just want to do it myself. So we, we started just in the, in the back of our little machine shed and kind of playing around. So the, the 15 inch corn head was, was the first thing that we built actually as a response to the, the agronomy work that we had done and, and showed a, a nice yield advantage of, of about 5% or 10 bushel. The only problem was there, there wasn't anything to harvest that with. And so I built one in my, my shed, uh, but at the time I, I did not realize that it was patentable. 
and then found out that I should probably visit with a patent attorney. And so that's kind of what led us to that early innovation. And then in the, the 2002 era, 2003, and we actually started building things and, and selling them to farmers. And uh, I don't know that that was one of my dreams early on was to become a manufacturer of corn heads and, and corn head parts. But I think we, we just tried to follow the path. And I always tell everybody, it, it, it's almost as if our greater Lord and God had created this path. And it was just a matter of time before I realized it and then I needed to follow that mm -hmm. um, to be able to help uh, with food production and, and also the preserving of our natural resources here in, the, in this country and as well as worldwide. What did you think you were going to do? Let's pick age 16. What is your plan <laughs> when you were a 16 year old? Yeah, when I, when I was 16, I, I just loved farming and always have and always will. And that was my dream ever, from, ever since my childhood. And, and I was a gearhead. So when I was a, a senior in high school, I borrowed $500 from grandma and $500 from the local bank. Said, I'm, I'm gonna go out and buy 10 pigs. Started to grow corn, soybeans, and, and pigs. And then that first year, um, I, I realized there was a lot of things that I didn't know about growing corn and soybeans and, and pigs. So uh, my oldest brother was, was farming at the same time. And we were working together quite a bit and with dad, you know. And, he just turned to me one day, we were driving down the road, and he said, you know, if the two of us are gonna farm for the rest of the time, he said, one of us ought to go to college and know what's going on. And so that, that was the moment in time, one of those aha moments. And I said, yeah. And so uh, I, I spent one year between uh, high school and college, and I, I think that was a great moment for me because I, I ended up going to college because I, I wanted to be there, and I wanted to learn about agriculture, but still just wanted to come home and grow corn, soybeans, and pigs for the rest of the time. Never, mm -hmm. never dreamed any of this was in my future. So up till that time, had you recognized that you were a tinker, that you were going to be in, inventing stuff, or did that drop in? Was there a moment of clarity that that popped in? You know, you I, it, since I was a kid, you know, dad was, we always had older machinery. And I'm just so thankful for the ancestors that I had. And I, I think that's part of it that's brought me to where I am today. My uh, ancestors actually came over from Sweden and they were blacksmiths. And they settled in our local community, which is mainly Swedish, predominantly Swedish. And then they also started to farm at the, at the same time. And so my grandfather and his brother were the first ones to take a wooden corn sheller, stationary corn sheller, and they mounted it on a solid rubber-tired Model T truck. And so my grandfather and his brother would go around the community and they would shell ear corn out of the cribs. And so they were, as we've been told, were some of the first ones to invent the, the mobile corn shelling unit that you saw Deere and Company made the, the trucks. And from that, then of course, they, they passed that on to dad, that innovation. And so growing up with dad, you know, I, I would come home from school and be frustrated because everybody else was planting corn and we were still working on old machinery. And I turned to dad one day at the kitchen table and I said, you know, why don't we go out and, and buy some newer machinery and then we won't have to be working on all the old machinery. And when I come home from school, we can, we can be planting corn instead of fixing machinery. And dad, dad turned to me, you know, and kind of smiled. And he said, well, why would we want to buy any new machinery? He said, let's just figure out what's wrong with what we have and then let's fix it and make it better and then we'll have what we need and so that kind of stuck with me and and uh, kind of learned that train of thought and that thinking of what's the problem 
and then what's the solution? And so I think that was instilled in me as I, I grew up. And then being a gearhead, you know, I, I liked working with uh, machinery and cars and trucks and tractors and so on and so forth. So I had always kind of been building some, some of my own farm machinery or modifying my own farm machinery and dad enjoyed that kind of stuff as well. But it, it wasn't until the, when I was in my mid-30s that the, finding out that I was actually an inventor of, of something was, was all new to me. Tell me about that time in your 30s and what you would define as your first invention. Yeah, the agronomy research thing was what kicked in in the middle 80s. And I remember I bought my first farm, struggling to start my own farming operation from scratch. And financially, it was, it was a real challenge during the 80s. And I guess I feel fortunate that I survived the 80s to, to go on. So I bought my first farm one year before land prices bottomed out in 84. And after the farm sale was over, I realized that well, now I've got to pay for it. And I thought to myself, I need to know the most profitable ways of growing corn and soybeans so that I can make payments. I don't want to lose my farm. So that's what was the motivation behind the on-farm research. That, that was a, a good thing. Got to meet a lot of interesting people. And so then as I progressed through that um, and some of the farm media started picking up on the fact that I, I owned an independent ag research facility and nobody was funding me any money and I get to this day to take my first dollar. I, I do it all myself and then I just share that information. Um, and that's important. That's, this is not bought research. And I think that's what makes me popular around the country is the fact that everybody knows, well, this is the truth. You know, Marion, Marion hasn't been had a chance to be biased by, by anything. So the farm media started to pick up and I, I started appearing on the cover of magazines about the on-farm research that I was doing. And so then that led to phone calls that said, hey, we would like you to come speak to our group of farmers at our fertilizer dealership or the innovative farmers of Huron County or at the National No-Till Conference or for Monsanto or DuPont or, or whoever. And Yetter was a, a big part of, of this whole trip. So from that, uh, the DuPont No-Till neighbors, I, I was one of the four in the state of Illinois with practicing no-till. So then they asked me to host a field day and we had a great turnout. And then from there, then the Yetter people asked me to talk. And then from there, the Monsanto people and then the, the no-till people. And so it just a, a chain of events once, once that opened up. But the moment that I, I still remember was that as I was on the speaking circuit, I was uh, during the winter month had, had flown up into the Thumb of Michigan and the innovative farmers of Huron County actually asked me to speak and so I'm up there and I'm, I'm clicking through and I said well I've been working with the neighbor and I said you know here's his planner and here's my planner and we're comparing 30 inch rows to 36 inch rows and I presented the data and I said you know about a five or six bushel advantage if you go from 36s down to 30 because that's what at that point in time everybody was still looking at and so one of the farmers raised his hand and he said well have you ever researched growing corn in rows that are narrower than 30 inches. And that, that was the moment and I said, you know, I, I have not. And he said, well, up here, he said, you know, we've got sugar beets and 22 inch rows and we'd be interested in knowing. And so as I'm going home on the plane, I'm sitting there in my notebook. I said, this is something I want to look at. And I had built this planter to plant six inch row soybeans with a six inch seed space and it was the older cyclo planters that have the drum on there. And so as I'm in the plane, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if I took a roll of duct tape 
and put the corn drums on this planter instead of the bean drums, I could do research for this individual and I could, with that roll of duct tape, I could plant 12 inch row corn, 18 inch rows, 24 inch rows, 30s and 36s. Same planter, same field, same variety, same hybrid, same population and, and all that. I, I got it all figured out in my head and I got home and then that spring we, we went out right behind the machine shed and laid out all these plots. And they come up out of the ground and I'm like, boy, this is really cool. And then, then it dawned on me, well, how, how are you going to harvest <laughs> it, you dummy? <laughs> you know, and I was kind of forced that I, you know, I've got to start giving some thought. Yeah. And so uh, we, we picked and some. Not, not a lot of time. Do well, we? not a lot of time. And, uh, you know, during the summer, we're still giving field tours and everybody's asking, you know, how are you going to harvest it? And so we were lucky enough that like the 12 inch rows, we, we used the 30 inch head and we'd pull two rows together. So we, we would pick these plots two rows at a time because you couldn't take a full swath. You just knock down too much. So we'd, we'd pick two rows and then we'd get the 12 inch stuff done. And then we'd pull it in and then we'd pick one 18 inch row, you know, we'd peel it off and we'd go down and we'd pick one row on the way back and one on the, so then we'd get through the next plot and then we'd go to the, the wider ones. And so we did that, we had a couple of replications and it, it took a couple of days to harvest all these plots, you know, one or two rows at a time and then weigh it all off. And then when I compiled the data, I, I could see there was a strong yield advantage to go into the narrow rows. And I said, the only missing piece to the puzzle is the corn head. And so then I start to struggle, well, am I gonna go 12 inch rows or 18 inch rows or whatever? And you know, the, the splitter planters from John Kinzenbaugh were of course around planting soybeans, no tilling, doing a great job. And I'm also growing seed corn for our local pioneer plant that's right there along the interstate in, in Woodhall. So I'm thinking about the future got a 7,000 John Deere planter. And I'm thinking of all the no-till, latest no-till gadgets, you know. And I'm thinking, well, I still need to grow seed corn for Pioneer because that's, that's making good money, hard work, but good money. And I said, if I had a 15-inch planter, I could go 15-inch soybeans, no-till soybeans. I could go 30-inch seed corn. And then I could also, on the other acres, I could go 15-inch commercial corn. So I thought, that's the planter. That's the system, and I have the ability to go to any row spacing. And then I said, we've, we've got to come up with a corn head. And so we started thinking about it, and everybody said, well, you'll never, you'll never be able to build a corn head. And so I remembered back to, to being in the neighbor's cornfield, doing some custom work with an older head. <laughs> I was at the end of the field, and I had one pass to go, and I broke a gathering chain. And so I had to stop, all the ears had piled up, and so I cleaned it all out and took the old gathering chain, threw it in the cab, and I'm like, I, I'm gonna finish. I'm not gonna stop and go back and get a new chain. Put it. So I go another 15 feet and I, I could just watch all the ears piling up in the row unit. And I'd stop and I'd clean them all out. And then I'd, I, I went real slow and then I would kind of watch how those ears would come up in there and then they would fall over into that voided area that was left because of the chain that had fallen off. And I said, gosh, I said, I just had like a two before or something to lay down in that void area. I said, those ears would stay up there and I'd be able to get to the, to the end of the field. And I kind of looked over in the fence and I didn't see anything. So I just kept cleaning it out and finally I got to the end of the field. And then I think I finally turned the combine around and just picked three rows at a time until I got, I got done. But that had been like five years before. And then I got to thinking about the narrow row corn, the 15 inch corn, and started measuring the gearboxes. And the first one we measured was like 
15 and an eighth inches wide. And I looked at it and I said, I, I think we can take a hand grinder and narrow it up to 15 inches. But I said, what am I gonna do here? With, and, and there was not enough room for, for two chains. And so then this concept hit me of, of what I'd remembered across the, the road at the neighbor's field. And so then we started playing around and I think some of the first ones were just a, you know, a piece of steel or a piece of wood because with a, with a piece of wood, it was easy for us to, to take the, the saw and man, manipulate the, the design. So we kind of played around with that. So the first maiden voyage was, was an old junkie four row head that we'd pulled out of the fence row, put it in the shed with, with my little combine. A hired man helped me. And so we took all the row units off and hand grinder and slid them together. And then we had to get rid of that gathering chain shaft. And so we, we, we tried to just cut it off with a cutoff wheel. Well, it's hard and steel, you know, and you can't hardly cut it off. Or, but we finally managed to get it, cut it off and grind it down. And a little bit later, the hired man and I were looking at each other and said, you know, we could have just opened up the gearbox, just took the shaft out, would have been a lot simpler. <laughs> so then uh, in December of uh, 94, and we took the video camera, the old VHS and crawled the old combine and I had left corn stand for the deer. I said, well, now's the perfect time to go out and, and try it out. So we did the maiden voyage it was like 13 degrees out mm. and uh, we had the camera there and we, we went the length of the field. And so we had, we had done the research on the, the different row spacings, seen the data. And so then we went right to working on the corn head and, mm -hmm. and my, uh, my heated shop. And so then we made a couple more design changes and, you know, we, of course we had to build, you know, you couldn't buy any parts. We had to build everything with a, with a torch and a hand grinder and a welder. So we kind of had a design that we thought would work and a friend of mine told me that what I had done was, was patentable. And he said, you need to shut your mouth and get to a patent attorney. And so my, my first patent attorney, again, this is all of these things almost were like somebody had laid them out ahead of me and all I had to do was execute. He was retired from Deer and Company and he had his own private practice as a patent attorney and uh, they, they called him the wizard. And uh, he was in charge of Deer and Company's intellectual property department. And, I sat down, visited with him, and told him what I had done. And he says, that is patentable. And I said, well, how do you know? And he said, well, I've been in the industry at Deer and Case, and if anybody had done this, he said, I would, I would know about it. And he said, we'll do a patent search. But he said, I'm pretty sure you're going to get a patent. And he started writing up the patent application. And so as I was leaving his office, I turned to him and I said, I said, so why is it you're retired from Deer? I said, I, I would assume you'd be at home watching logs burn in a fireplace. And Vince, he turned to me and he says, you know something? He said, I just like the fun of it and the, the innovators that I meet. He had worked with Eugene Keaton, who's mm -hmm. a good buddy of his, Howard Martin, and Greg Sauters. And so he, he had a pretty good track record of... of Those are all, it, all guys we're doing interviewing for this oh, series, yeah. by the way. Great, great group of guys. And I, I, I've been honored to have their wisdom, their knowledge and, and stuff. So I said, well, I said that... Good answer, good answer. I said, so you, you write my patent up for me. He says, I, I'll do that. And then I was going through the door. He says, hey, he says, come back here. He said, what? He said, I've met your kind before. And I said, really? And he goes, yep. And he said, I'm pretty confident that once you learn the train of thought for innovation, and once you learn the system of filing patents and what it takes, he said, I'm pretty confident that you're just going to continue to come out with inventions and patentable concepts uh, into the future and it'll be in the corn harvesting department 
So he was kind of telling you, your, your farm days alone are over, yeah. your son. Yeah, yeah. He, he could kind of <laughs> see the writing on the wall. I turned to him and I said, Vince, I said, you're wrong. I said, this is a one and done deal. <laughs> I said, I just stumbled onto this idea. And I said, we're, we're going to run with it wherever it takes us. But and I said this. And now today, I think we have like 20 different inventions over this 20-year stretch. I, I think I was in my late 30s, and now I'm 61. So had a few years to, to work on coming up with, with new ideas. Mm -hmm. Was that experience what led you to working with the, the major line OEMs at that point? The, uh, the, the very next call, as soon as we had filed the patent, I had contacts at both Deer and Case, and I showed them what we had done. We had some field days for them, and they were, they were both interested in sitting down and having some conversations. But at that point in time, we, we decided to visit with the, the case people. And I, I born and raised with Red Machinery. So we visited with them and we, we started there. Things were okay, but the innovation and where I was at was, was quite a ways ahead of what they were looking at. Well, the marketing people, they, they thought, I've got the next great toy. Narrow row corn's gonna be the next step in, in agriculture. The marketing people were really excited about it. And, uh, but on the cornhead side, we, we couldn't pull it all together quick enough. And so then I moved on and worked with the John Deere people. But you know, I learned a lot, and I, th I think those both at Deere and Case, they, they learned quite a bit. The younger engineers learned quite a bit from me while I was there. And a little bit about the manufacturing, a little bit about the economics, a little bit about a business plan. And I, and I, I turned to one of the guys, I said, business plan? I said, what's that? And he goes, well, that's a plan that shows we're going to make some money when we, when we build this. So I had heard some of that and knew, you know, how to be able to come up with the, the markup, you know, and, and learn about cost of manufacture and, and you know, hardening. And, and there's a, there was a lot of education. It went, went both ways. So then in the early 2000 era, then I'm going to need to go it alone. We're going to make this thing fly. I, I got to do it myself. And I had met John Kinzenbaugh and visited with him at, at one of your no-till conferences. And we, we'd given him an award for an mm -hmm. innovator as well. And I called one day and talked to his secretary. And I said, well, I'm Marion Calmer. I said, I invented the 15-inch cornhead. I'd like to talk to John because he invented the 15-inch bean planter. Mm -hmm. And she goes, I, and he's pretty busy. So let me check. Pretty soon, John comes on the phone. Hey, Marion, how's it going? <laughs> I said, great. I said, I'm, I'm from Illinois. And I said, I, he said, I know who you are. He said, I read all about you in the magazines. And so he was all excited and gave me some of his wisdom, you know, during his learning curve of, of going from rehorsepowering up John Deere tractors to, to building planter frames and mm. to, to where the company is today. And John, he just turned to me at the meeting sitting in Des Moines. He just turned to me, I was, Frank was at the table with us, and John just turned to me, he says, Mary, and he said, I'm, I'm here to tell you if, you, if you want this thing done and done right, he said, you'll do it yourself. Grandpa used to say the same thing, if you want it done right, do it yourself. Mm -hmm. and so that's, we, we started our own company, and, but I never in my wildest dreams, never in my wildest dreams did I expect to become a short line manufacturer of corn heads and corn head parts, let alone build the world's largest corn heads. The, the ones with the narrowest row spacings and, and invent the, the world's first chopping stock roll. I, those, they, they just happen. I always tell everybody that necessity is the best mother of invention. And if you find a problem, our job is to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. And that, that's where we're at today. And I, I think we're gonna continue that on. And 
um, looking looking forward to the challenges as we move into the future. So if we go back to that, the, the time where you, because you worked with both of those manufacturers, mm -hmm. you were basically, you know, ink deals, they were going to come along, they were going to carry this out to the market. Tell, Absolutely. Tell us, tell us what that was like, that you're dealing with battleships. <laughs> it, it was kind of interesting. Um, you know, some of the people that I, I met at Case were, that said, you know what, we're, we want to become the industry leader and we need innovation, we need new, new things and we, we want you in our camp and we want you to help with us. But at the same time, we, you'd run into a few people that said, you know, and it, it's at both companies, I think it's with any major company. Yeah. And you know, you'd run into a few individuals who said, you know, I've been here for 35 years, I know everything there is to know, and it's not gonna work. And I turned to him and I said, you know what, with that attitude, you're exactly right. I think Henry Ford stated it best, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. So we kind of struggled, you know, and I'd wake up in certain mornings and I'm just anxiety and I'm just like, gosh, the program's just not going the way it's supposed to. And then other days I'd wake up and say, oh gosh, I'm gonna be a multimillionaire and everything's wonderful. And then the next day it's like, I'm going broke. So the emotional financial roller coaster thing was phenomenal in those early years, just from one, one day to the next. Or somebody say, oh, somebody's already done that, or you know, it'll never work, you know. There's just a lot of people that don't want you to be successful because it's new mm -hmm. and they're scared of, of new things, whether it's no-till or, or whether it's some different method of growing corn. So was it the frustration of dealing with bureaucracy and hordes of engineers who, you said finding a reason not, right. not to do it. Was that what led you to say, I'm ready to just make this alone. thing happen by myself. Yeah. You know, the patents only last for so long, and, and back then it was, uh, they lasted for 17 years from date of application, that was my first one. And, and I, I knew that the sand was going through the hourglass on my invention. And I, I had, you know, it was a passion that I, I believed that I, was developing both mechanically and agronomically at the same time uh, something that would be useful for agriculture and, and namely the the narrow row corn or the solid seeded corn and I kept telling everybody corns are grass and I said it's just, just time we as farmers treat it like a grass and solid seeded and so uh, we were just moving too slow and I spent two three years with the John Deere people and it was kind of different there. The, the Cornhead people were more excited. They thought that we really had something great, but we were still struggling a little bit with trash intake uh, on that particular Cornhead that they had at that time. Uh, but the marketing people were on the other side of it. Well, we're promoting 20 inch rows and so on and so forth. So it was kind of, kind of different. Case, marketing people loved me. Cornhead people were kind of lukewarm. And, and you've got to have both groups at 10 on the interest level in order to make it fly. And so then at Deer, it was the other way around. The Cornhead people, they were at 10. The marketing people were kind of lukewarm on the idea. So, and then I kind of thought about what John had told me and his experiences. And I, I said, boy, I said, we're now into the early 2000 era. And I said, if I'm gonna get this thing launched, I'm gonna and have to do how it. How many years in pat, into patent protection were you at at that point? Um, we were already five years in. And so the, the patents last for 17 years. Yeah. So I, I knew that we, we had spent some time there and the, the sand was running through the hourglass. Yeah. yeah. 
it sounds like to a degree you were a reluctant manufacturer because it had these other ones worked out, you wouldn't be sitting in the chair today no. as CEO of Calmer Cornheads because no. It, it was uh, it, it was kind of a, I had to instead of I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Where that was different, you know, in farming it was I wanted to, but uh, the, the starting my own manufacturing company was I, I just had to, and I can remember those first years, you know, sell five or seven thousand dollars worth of parts, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, wow, this is this is pretty exciting. <laughs> We'll get back to the story of Calmer Cornheads in a moment. But first, a quick word about Ingersoll Tillage, which supported our time, travel, and production in bringing these stories to you. Ingersoll specializes in blades and coulters for optimal seedbed solutions. Visit them at www.ingersolltillage.com. Now back to Marion Calmer in part two of the podcast. Would your dad tell you when you uh, went home and said, I got enough of the two? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Of course, Grandpa had, had passed on, but when I was a younger boy and coming home from school, I'd jump in the car with Grandpa and we'd go out to the field. Dad would be out there picking ear corn or combine and beans or whatever. And I can remember one weekend, all, all my three older brothers were there with me and Dad. So it was all three generations and Grandpa and Dad. And I remember <laughs> Grandpa saying, you know, it's taken a long time to build the Calmer reputation. And he kind of looked at us four boys. And then dad looked at us and he said, yep, it's taken us a lifetime to build a reputation for the Calmer name. And he said, it's only gonna take you a heartbeat to destroy it. And then he looks at me and he doesn't look at the other three boys. Only gonna take a heartbeat to destroy it, you know? And, and I was just getting, you know, into the high school years and, you know, doing a little race and street racing, you know, and stuff like that. It was kind of funny that mom and dad still laughed about it, but. You know what, they, they were as excited as anybody was. And they would come over when we built that first cornhead. Mom and dad were there every day. And they, they would sit there and, and watch us. There was about three of us that were fabricating the parts. And then all of a sudden we'd come across and say, you know what, we, we need 100 bolts this size. And mom and dad would say, you know, we got something to do. And so we'd hand them the bolt and they'd take off and go down to Galesburg and have lunch at parties or something and mm-hmm. pick up a hundred bolts and come back to the shop. And so they were our, our gophers. Mm-hmm. And I, I can remember mom and dad, we, we put plastic paddles on the gathering chains and the, the early corn heads. And so that, I said, here's your job. And so they were over in the corner of the shop, you know, and the corn was starting to dry down. And so mom and dad are over there and they're part of the game too. They were very proud and I, I was proud to have them as part of my team and my my other brother was there as, as well and uh, it was a it was a joint effort and everybody believed that it would work but we still when we built that first 11 row that first summer we did not know for sure that it would run mm-hmm. we had a pretty good idea that it would but we still there was still that margin of possibility that uh, <laughs> I had just grown 200 acres of 15 inch corn <laughs> <laughs> and the neighbors had come over and they had a little box and 
They gave the little box to me and they said, you need to open this for harvest. And I said, why is that? Well, you're going to need it come harvest time. I'm like, okay. And I opened it up and it was one of those hand husking pegs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the neighbors were kind of banking on the fact that it, it, the cornhead yeah. wasn't going to run. Mm-hmm. And after, after that first 40 acres disappeared, they, they were pretty excited about it. And they were kind of rooting, cheering me. And today, the, the neighbors are still, they, they joke, you know, but all the neighbors are excited of, about our success. and. Our ability to make it, you know, that uh, we we didn't know, you know, if if uh, that we were we were going to get to this point. Mm-hmm. We dreamed about it, we just didn't know. But uh, I, I can remember that the the day of the maiden voyage, and uh, we we pulled out and it was on the end rows. We purposely planted some early corn so we would have a chance to test the corn head mm-hmm. prior to the season kicking in. Had it all painted up, took a whole bunch of pictures of it, you know, and then we pulled into the field and uh, we were able to go 80 rods with without stopping and uh, you know that's almost unheard of when you build prototypes the ability to pull in the field and and I, I felt pretty fortunate that everything that we had done um, there was only one or two little minor things we were, we were jumping some gathering chains and we had to put in some anti back feeding plates and other than that, we had pretty much anticipated what we were expecting to see when we got to the to the mm-hmm. field, and uh, I I can remember I got got to the end of the 80 rods and we stopped and Mom and Dad the employees were there, and I just started bawling. You just the passion that it takes to build something that people say can't be built and then watch it run, it's just unbelievable. Great so, day. It was a great day. I've got a picture of it. And I, I hugged the employee and my parents and my brother. Couldn't have got here without you, yeah. you know, and one of those kind of deals. Yeah. So it was, it was a pretty exciting day. So from there, how long did it take till the first order and first shipment yeah. took place? So I think from, from the, the, the date of the maiden voyage uh, up until the, the first person called in and bought a, a kit to retrofit uh, a corn head to 15 inch rows. It was about six years, mm-hmm. and then we had to make the molds for the poly, and you know those kind of things. The first, <laughs> the first cornet, of course, there you know there is no poly for 15-inch rows, and <laughs> so I'd done some measuring and had some old sewer pipe, you know, that we had dug up, and and I got to measuring, and I said, you know, that's about the right width, and so we we used the PVC pipe, white PVC pipe, and uh, we cut it in half, and that that was. Uh, our first uh, hoods that, that we used out there. And so the, this farmer, I had to explain to him how to, how to go to the local plumbing store and, and buy some sewer pipe to, to build his divider mm-hmm. snouts. And so those things were kind of fun. So the, the first year, I, I think we sold an upgrade kit and then um, we advertised. And then the farm magazines, of course, were running some stories about it. And then the, uh, that, that first year we, we built three uh, 16 row, 15 inch corn heads, mm-hmm. and luckily enough, I mean, w- one of them was green, one was red, and one was yellow. They all had the same parts, but we had one for every combine, and we we took a picture um, out there that first year. That was pretty exciting to mm-hmm. to see them. But we we were still struggling big time financially because of the money that we were pouring into molds, and mm-hmm. you know having somebody manufacture some of these parts you know, and the labor, taking old gearboxes and cleaning them up, putting new parts in them, 
putting them on the corn head, you know, and machining them down. And mm-hmm. So that, uh, that, that first couple of years was, we, we had a lot of man hours. And uh, I remember going in the house and we'd, we'd start at like six o'clock in the morning and then I'd, I'd go in at 12 o'clock and eat something, and then lay down on the couch, take about a 30 minute nap, wake up, work through the afternoon. Everybody else would punch out and go home. I'd go in the house, get something to eat, lay down, take a nap. And then I'd wake up, come back out to the shed and be there till 10 o'clock mm-hmm. at night trying to get things to, to come together. And, you know, I've been out to your place a couple times in the old dealership that you took over. What, you, what year would that have been that you moved out there? That was 2005. Okay. So we had done everything prior to that moment. We had done it in the old farm shop. And uh, it, it was kind of challenging because, it, you know, the, the heated shop was, was with concrete was only 50, 50 feet by 50 feet. And, of course, then you have all your tools that are in there. And, so then we, you know, we didn't, didn't even own a fork truck. We had the old loader tractor. <laughs> so we would use that to stand the corn heads up when we worked on them and then lay them back down, you know. And then we had the combine, it just sat outside all, because we didn't have room to put it in the shed. They just sat outside all, all summer. And then we'd come in, pick the heads up and back out and move them around and we'd take them out and then we'd run them, you know, do a, do a 30 minute run in to make sure we didn't have any oil leaks and those kind of things. And uh, so it was kind of a, a one-off build kind of a deal in, in the old shop. And we weren't zoned for manufacturing and the, the building just wasn't. And so I, I said, we, we've, we've got to find someplace else. And uh, actually it was, a, it was an old machinery dealership. I used to go up there and buy parts when I was in high school and it had become available. And uh, <laughs> we, we were so excited we went up there, you know, and the, the thing is like 60 by 220 feet. And one end of it has offices, and the other in a little warehouse area, and then it's got a little shop area. And gosh, it had air plumbed in the wall, you know, and it had heat and and overhead doors that had electric hoists, and and then it, it had bathrooms in it, you know. And I'm just like, wow, this this is pretty nice. We don't have to go outside anymore. Actually, have indoor plumbing, yeah. you know. <laughs> so that was an exciting moment when we we took everything, combines, all the corn heads, all the tools. And we loaded them up and we, we moved seven miles uh, to where our current location is at today. So that was, that was pretty memorable. Mm-hmm. And major commitment that we're, oh, yeah. we're going off the farm. This is, there's no turning back. This yeah, this is, this is serious stuff. And so I, uh, I, again, in order to purchase that place, of course, we, you know, we were just didn't have any money. We were just nickel and diamond it to, to stay together. And uh, the uh, local bankers said that, well, they, they have these, um, rural economic development loans and he said they're low interest and um, we, we needed to borrow a hundred thousand bucks and uh, so I went up there and I sat down with the lady and she said well you need a financial statement yeah. and then you know what are you going to build and payment how many years and then she said well we'll need a business plan so that we can take a look at that and then we'll either approve or not approve your, your loan but uh, what's this business plan thing? I said, I, I never had that when I was growing corn and beans and pigs. And she said, well, that's where you're gonna tell us what your cost of manufacture is, what you're gonna sell it, what's your overhead, and how much money you're gonna make. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. You know, I went home, gosh, I, you know, I just sat there for hours. The paper was blank. I didn't know what to put on it. And we just started piecing it together and they approved the loan and, um, it was slow, but uh, that was that was where we started. You had told me a story a few years ago about when when things were real tough, mm-hmm. coming back from the Farm Progress show, and 
not certain there was going to be a, another end of that. Can you take us? I think it was. Yeah, oh, oh, 05. We had been down at the, um, the new facility for two years, and um, the Farm Progress Show was at Amana, and it rained and it was a mud fest. And, um, Remember that one. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Lordy. And so we, we loaded up everything and we came back from the Farm Progress Show, and it was the last. At that time, we were just doing a few events and came home and I harvested and we finished building everything and we'd cashed everybody's check and uh, we, we still owed a quarter of a million dollars in bills of, of stuff that we had ordered and purchased. Now some of it was in inventory, but um, you can't use inventory to pay bills. And that, that was probably the lowest point. And uh, I harvested and of course, you know, corn prices hadn't taken off yet. So the farm economy wasn't that great. So we went through fall and uh, then we got to be 60 and then we were 90 days out on some of the bills and just trying to hopefully wait until somebody ordered something for the, the next growing season. And we had a little seminar and I can remember prior to the seminar, I was sitting in my desk and I'd just stare at the wall. You, you just become numb when you get to that point and uh, just like this is not how the story's supposed to end. And mom and dad had already passed away and you know, we we used all the farms for leverage to, to get capital to, to build. And so I put on our little seminar, and as I walked out, one of the farmers walked up to me, and he says, Mary, and he says, I, I saw you at the Farm Progress Show at Amana, and he said, I've been following your narrow row corn thing, and he says, I think you're onto something. And he said, I want to go to 15-inch corn next year. I said, that's that's awesome. And he said, I'm going to need two corn heads. I said, that's that's really great. And he said, and I'm actually in a position, he said, I need a tax deduction before December 31st. Yeah. He says, so I'm, I'm going to write you a check for $100,000. And then uh, he said, I'll be back next summer and I'll pay you the balance and pick up the two heads. Yeah. I can remember where I sat <laughs> and I watched him write the check yeah. and I'm just like, oh God, please don't let him stop. You yeah. know, and he wrote out the check and he got his coat and he went out the door and I went into my gal that does accounts payable and accounts receivable. And I said, look what I got. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, and she grabbed her coat. And so he was pulling out of the parking lot. She was right behind him and he turned right to go back to Iowa and she turned left to go to the bank. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that was the point, that was the closest that we ever came to, to not making it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then we just slowly, you know, people started ordering stuff and then the farm economy started to pick up. And so we started to feel a little better about it, you know, and a little more cushion. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, of course, we we came across this this problem of the the residue buildup and not you know soil not decomposing the residue like it's supposed to. And so we'd started coming out with the BT chopper. It was very quickly uh, accepted, and the sales took off immediately with mm -hmm. that. And. So we just, I, I can remember like every year, you know, that as soon as harvest was over and we'd cashed everybody's check um, that had bought stuff from us. And we were able to pay the bills and then we didn't have any left. We, we got them all paid, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I can remember the next year when we had a few bucks left over, you know, and so then I gave some bonuses to the employees uh, to share that success and then the corn market really took off. and. And then every every year there'd just be a little more money left in the checking account mm -hmm. when we got to the end of the season. So to start with 500 bucks from grandma and 500 bucks at the bank and and kind of struggle until I was 50 years old and then to almost go broke and then to watch it and then the rocket shot mm -hmm. to just go straight up. I, it's 
I still pinch myself and believe, is it really true? Did it really happen to mm-hmm. me? And am I really one of these guys that got to live the dream? You know, you, you got to believe in the dream, but then to get to live it, you know, and then share it, you know, with the, the employees that, that I have and, and my customers and uh, the, the farmer and the feedback that we get. That's, that's worth more than any amount of money to, to see them here at your conference. And they walk up to me and say, gosh, we, we bought your stuff a year ago, best money we ever spent. We'd been having a problem forever. And we put your stuff on our corn head and now, now we don't have a big pile of trash in, in front of the auger that we can't harvest on dry days. And we're, we're getting you know, better performance out of the head. We're getting less butt shelling and you know, our residues decomposing and our no-till equipment works better. And we used to struggle trying to get the cover crops to grow, and now we put your stock rolls on, you know, and they say we just pull in with a drill and it's just a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. And to, to hear that and to see young farm families that were struggling, and then we offer just a few pointers, and then they come back and say, guys, that, that helped, and help them get kind of a business train of thought that says, you know, we want you to make money when you, when you buy this stuff. I just don't want to sell it to you and me be the only one that gets a reward. I, I said, we, we want to see you become successful. And I want to see you get to enjoy your farming career and your family and your children. And so it's, it's a whole cycle that goes all the way around. And I guess I was taught that uh, you far more out of life by giving than you ever will by taking. Right. And, uh, you know, the on-farm research, the people that come up to me and say, yeah, you know, that information is priceless. You know, I said, well, you know, I just enjoyed doing it and sharing it with other people. Just something you want to help that next generation. And in agriculture, we're such a small portion of the, of the planet, but we're responsible to, to feed the planet and simultaneously <laughs> protect the environment. You know, not only protecting the soil, but, you know, making sure that we have clean drinking water. And, you know, that's a big one. I worked on the hypoxia problem back in the in the middle 90s. And, and then, so we, we have those two challenges. And then number three is to, to be able to handle the economic challenges of high price grain and now low price grain with high input costs. Yep. We go back to that era you were talking about coming back from a man on before that order came. Would, would that have been the darkest oh, day yeah. you had to endure? <laughs> yeah. Yep, that, that, was the, that was the pure bottom right there. Because the, the thing that was it was number one, the financial worries was one of them, but it was just, you, you felt, I felt frozen in time because it consumed 90% of my mental capacity during the day because that was, that was the biggest fear. Mm-hmm. And, and then it, you just start to shut down and so your ability to make good decisions, and it, just, just a big chain of events that, mm-hmm. that rolls in the wrong direction. So I tell people nowadays, I said, for me personally, I don't think that I'll be defined by my successes, but for me personally, I, I'm defined by my ability to overcome the obstacles that it took mm-hmm. to get where I am today. But builds character and uh, the, the obstacle, because you just don't, you don't see them on the radar. All you're looking at is that big pie in the sky that says, you know, sales and numbers and being able to do something. And you don't realize all the little obstacles that come along. And uh, luckily we've, we've been able to overcome them. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment, but here's another free podcast from the Lessiter Media staff that you want to be sure to check out. 
Hi, this is Frank Lesseter from No-Till Farmer, which is the original publication in the Lesseter Ag Media's portfolio. If you're interested in the best of what farmers are doing in soil health, fertility, cover crops, and a variety of seeding and planting innovations, you'll want to check out our No-Till Farmer podcast. You can search No-Till Farmer on your favorite podcast station to subscribe to this informative twice-a-month podcast. Now back to Mike and the How We Did It podcast. It's interesting that in the series, almost to a man, almost every conversation, there are some really dark times and there's yeah. been some legal problems with some and just some that they didn't think there was going to be any way out. And right. You, you wish you don't have to go through those times, but you don't end up in the chair you, you're sitting in today unless right. you do. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I read the, the little book about uh, Mr. John Deere the blacksmith shop and you know his days of financially not being able to pay his bills and some of those kind of things you know Howard Martin I talked to him and he knew that he went through those eras and and uh, I I don't think there's a one of us that didn't in the conversations with Greg Sodders you know him and his wife raising pigs and in the early days and there isn't a one of us that that, you know didn't uh, go through that but it, it makes you stronger and it makes you appreciate it, makes you respect it. It's just not a given that you wake up every day. And philosophy that we live on is that we, we treat people the way we'd like to be treated. And I think that's what comes across. It's a thing called tone at the top. And so I, I teach that to the people that work around me and I treat them that way. And then it allows my people over the phone to treat farmers that way when they call in uh, customer service, you know, and say, yep, stock roll broke or we stripped a bolt out or something. Yep, I've been there, done that. We're just gonna send you another stock roll. Mm. Wow, you know, I've never had anybody do that before, you know. Or we offer that 100% money back guarantee. Well, gosh, never heard anybody doing that. Mm -hmm. Or they they come across and say, well, I I got your your installation manual and Marion's cell phone numbers right right on the installation manual. They said, well, we've never seen this. It's kind of unusual. And I said, well, if you're having issues, I, I want to be right there. Whether it's a normal, a normal day or whether it's 8 o'clock at night and they just got out of the combine or whether it's on a Saturday or a Sunday, I said, we, we know what it's like. Harvest is, is 24-7 when the, when the crop's ready to go. And we want to be there to, to, to help them through that harvest. Yeah. So we talked a moment about, you know, kind of the worst day. What was the best day you've had in the... <laughs> oh, boy, that's a, that's a pretty interesting question. Well, I would tell you one of the best days of, of my life was, was when my daughter was born. You know, that's a, it, it changes your attitude toward everything. And watching her d- develop and take an interest in agriculture and riding with Dad in the combine and sitting, you know, I, I remember I, I have a red combine and... It's got a little valley there in, in front of the floor mat and in front of the steering wheel between the, the, the windshield and the steering wheel, there's a little area. And when she was little, she'd come riding the combine. She'd sit down there and it'd be her little fingerprints would be on the windshield. <laughs> yeah. And she'd just sit there all day watching the cornhead run. And, and then I remember her sitting in my lap and uh, she said, I want to drive, me drive, okay. And so we pulled in with the 15 inch cornhead and this was one of the early years so she's, she's sitting there in my lap, and of course it's pretty tough even for a grown adult to guide it down the road, but that, that was a highlight uh, of having her drive the combine of, of my invention, the yeah. cornhead. 
And so anyway, I kind of reached down underneath and I had a hold of the bottom of the steering wheel. And then, so I was kind of guiding it and she was up there like this thinking, <laughs> she's, she's yeah. in control. Yeah. And she's driving and she looks down and she saw that I had a hold of the bottom of the steering wheel. And she slapped my hand, she goes, me drive, me drive. Yeah. So then uh, when, when she got into high school and I, I told her, I said, well, if you're interested in ag, uh, I said, I, I want to rent you 40 acres of beans and uh, you'll get the feel of what it's like to, to grow crop. And I said, but you, you have to be there when we plant it. You have to drive the tractor and you have to run all the computers, auto steer. And it was amazing to watch her get in the cab. She'd run the tractor before, but mm -hmm. to see her take, take control, that was, that was a great moment. And so um, watching her and then, you know, so we do the 50-50 the thing with her. So when it came time to buy a car, you know, I said, you know, if you've made a few hundred bucks, we'll, we'll buy, you know, I'll match it. I mean, we'll, you get 500 bucks, we'll buy a thousand dollar car. She thought, well, that's pretty cool. So anyway, that, that first year we were looking for a car for her and things were going pretty good with the, the company and uh, she'd rented her first. And I said, well, you're, you're going to have to decide when you want to sell the, the beans. And oh, okay. So anyway, she kind of went off to school. She's a cheerleader. She's in band, you know, and extracurricular. Really busy and came springtime. And I said, well, we're getting ready to plant the next crop. I said, you know, you kind of need to pay the input costs and things like that. And she goes, oh, well, I probably ought to sell the beans. And I said, well, you probably should generate some cash. Sure enough, she nails it, $14.20 some cents a bushel, her first crop. And uh, she still smiles about it today. And uh, she's not able to do that every year, but that yeah. first year. And so uh, to, to watch her um, come along in the, in the ag industry mm -hmm. and come to the conferences. Yeah, you know, you brought she, her I brought her a number of times yeah. to the conferences, taking her to the trade shows, you know, and ever riding the tractor and combine, make her be involved. If there's one thing now at my age is that now that we're established, and I look to the future and where's the company going to go from here and all of the valuable employees that I have and the, the vendors. You know, we treat them just like family as well because without them building good stock roles, I got nothing. And the customers, the salespeople and all that. And we realize that in my company that changing of the guard is going to take place. So I'm happy, I am excited and cautiously optimistic. My daughter definitely has a, a true interest and I, I'm trying to teach her to think. And as best stated by Jean-Pierre Rousseau, the CEO of Fiat and Case for several years, and he told me, he said, as CEO, he said, it's not my job to run computers. It's my job to hire people to run computers. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to teach that to my daughter, and I try to live that every day. As, as I'm, I'm not there to do all the work anymore. My job is to hire the right people, train them, motivate them, and give them constructive criticism, mm -hmm. and commend them on the things that they do well, and they, they are what we're all about. And um, trying to teach her that people, being successful, it's, it's all about being able to manage people and having the right people in the right place. Mm -hmm. And um, so she's in ag business management at University of Illinois, and looks to work at a major company for maybe five years or so, and then come back and uh, work her into the operation. So Great. I'm anxious to start turning over that responsibility to the next group that, that will continue to run our company mm -hmm. as we move on, which is where yeah. we're at. One of the things I wanted to, to ask you about, 
you entered a segment where you were blazing the trail. You you weren't coming in right. with a product that could be bolted onto something. And That's right. Tell me about. I mean that that by itself is pretty risky. You were making a name with a, a, a paradigm shift, right? Yeah, we we were trying to change people's thinking, and um, that they, people would come up and say, you know, I've hit a wall. I've gone as far as I can with yield. I I need to. What's what's the next step? What's the next key that unlocks the next 10, 20 bushel an acre? And so you know, I spent a lot of time on the phone with ag editors and felt privileged that uh, you folks would allow me to talk at this conference and, and discuss those subjects. And I, 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 I got to tell you that, you know, yesterday I, I talked about narrow row corn and in one of my little classrooms and I looked at the size of the audience and I'm like, man, this is, this is unbelievable. I mean, the room was almost full. Mm -hmm. And I can remember, you know, 15 years ago and, and Frank allowing me to talk and I had a classroom session. <laughs> I think there was 10 or 15 people yeah. that came to listen to me talk about narrow row corn. And so we're, we're getting there and people are starting to understand uh, the logistics of, of corn and beans with the biology and that uh, the narrow row, the solid seeded concept is, is actually the future to protect the, the soil, the water, and at the same time, um, give us another little niche on profitability. The input costs are still the same, we're just gonna grow higher yields. Yeah. There's probably a lot of farmers, you know, we're in an industry where there's just great mechanical minds on the, on the farm who are adjusting things all the time uh, to improve their operation. I, I imagine there's a lot of farmers out there who see the success of you and the others that we mentioned here that kind of dream of, of, of that possibility. And, Absolutely. And question, I guess, for you is um, being able to make the step from the inventive mind to the manufacturing and distribution side, what, what are the things that you maybe didn't realize at that when you were <laughs> on the precipice that you now know and could pass on? Well, in the early days, we were just anxious to tell the story. And one of those moments, the, the one that comes to mind is, is uh, we were at Louisville 10 to 12 years ago, it, was, it would have been in the, the 05, 06, 07 era. And we're, we're setting up our booth. And of course, I still have the farmer mentality and the, the guy that's helping me is a farmer, you know. And so we're sitting there setting it up, getting all ready just to tell the story. And so the previous five years that we had been at the National Farm Machinery Show, we, we were off in a corner and people come by and they'd look at our posters and we'd tell them the story and they'd, they'd walk on. So we're setting up down here in Louisville, National Farm Machinery Show, and over the loudspeaker, a lady announces that today we have a workshop for the exhibitors in room 102, and today's topic is turning leads into sales. <laughs> and I stopped what I was doing, and I looked up at the other farmer that was there, and I said, you know, now that's a hell of a concept. <laughs> And we both started laughing and we still laugh about it today. And, it, and I said, I just never thought about, you know, trying to ask them to, to buy something. I said, we just tell the story, hand them a brochure, and they move on. And we kind of laughed about it. So we got out some scratch papers. So somebody would come by and they were pretty interested and say, hey, you know, we'd like to sell this to you. And uh, if I could jot your name down, when, when we get the inventory built up, we'd like to call you back and see if you'd be interested. They said, oh, that, that's great. So we'd, we'd had a few leads. So then 
that summer, we, we had some people we could call. It wasn't just the, the ads in the back of the farm magazines. We actually had some personal contacts. Mm -hmm. We started calling those and everybody said, yep, I, I want to get your stuff and we'll send you a check and then we'd box it up and ship it out. So the, I was telling the banker about that. He sat there and he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, um, if they'd want to make a deposit or a, you know, give you a credit card number or something like that, he said, we'd even borrow you money so you could build the inventory ahead of time and not have to wait, you know. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, that was another moment, you know, where we were able to generate a little bit of cash operating. Because that's one of the things, you know, for the, the guys that try to do it themselves. You just don't have the extra operating capital because you've got it all tied up in production ag, you know, and unless you come from a farm that's a lot of generations and a lot of the percentage of land ownership is very high. And, and so they have a lot of extra working capital. I wasn't in that position. So we had to kind of make a little bit and then we'd build some inventory and sell it and then we'd make a little. And so it was slow, slow increments. The advertising side of things was kind of interesting because people said, well, it's not real polished language that you use in your ads. And I said, well, it's one farmer talking to another one. And then people would come up and said, I read your ad. I went right down through it and yep, got that problem, got that problem. I know what you're talking about and here's the solution and I'm in. Mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> I tell everybody, I think sometimes the crudeness proved that we were real farmers helping other farmers. Mm -hmm. We like to claim to fame. Authenticity that we're, about yeah, it. Yeah. That were uh, farmer invented, farmer tested, and farmer proven. Mm -hmm. yep. So those, those are some of the things that I, I think if you've got a really good idea, it's pretty easy to communicate that to another farmer. And, and that farmers like to visit with other farmers when it comes time to, to buy a piece of machinery or mm -hmm. Make a change. If you look look out and you know, we talk about short line equipment manufacturing in general, is it getting too difficult to have the next round of calmers do what you did? You make an in you interesting point. As we look out into the future, will it be harder or easier for new startup companies, innovators, out of that think tank that to, to, to sprout up and? Uh, it, it's, it's like a new, new hybrid of corn or something. Will, will the next generation? I honestly think it's getting a little easier um, because with technology, we're actually creating issues that we never used to have. And there's always room for solutions. And the, the best innovation always starts right at the farm level. And the big companies are so concentrated on you know, producing manufacturing and uh, getting it out to the customer that they maybe don't have the time to spend. At the farm level, you know, some of the chat rooms, a lot of the guys talk about what they hear and, you know, and so somebody posts a question to, you know, has anybody had a problem with this? And it's pretty easy to find it, uh, identify the problems that we're seeing in agriculture. So once you identify the problem, then we need somebody to step up come up with a solution. And so I, I think the, the, the door, because the, the companies are further away from the actual farm level than they used to be, and the, the dealers, there's less dealers, you know, and there's less of that. Even though communication is easier today than it used to be, with so much innovation with all of the electronics and all of the gadgetry that we sometimes overlook the basics. It's, it's like playing football. You know, if, if you don't get the fundamentals right of, of blocking and developing the whole, the running back is never going to become a star. 
And I, I think we're seeing that now in agriculture that a lot of the fundamentals just get overlooked. And you, you come back with some of the simplest, you know, the people, they, they look at my stock roll and they say, well, that's, that's so simple. Why didn't I think of that, you know? And some, sometimes that's, um, we get so high tech that, that we just overlook the obvious. Who would you consider top couple mentors of yours? <laughs> and what, what was it that they passed on to you? John Kinzenbaugh, um, when I visited with him, you know, he was very encouraging. He said, you can do it. He felt confident. And then from, from there, you know, I, I got to meet uh, Eugene Keaton and uh, spend time at his home and out to supper with him and out at the farm and, and of course, his neighbors, Howard Martin. Mm -hmm. I get to look at those two guys and, you know, they told me about how the concept came into their mind, you know, and I, I tell people some of that, you know, I wake up at two in the morning and I, I could grab a piece of scratch paper and I draw a diagram and I go back to sleep, you know, and just seeing and listening to those guys go, th go through the struggles, whether it be lawsuits and patent infringement, which thank God I haven't had to go through any of those, and watch those guys go through it and be successful. And I said, well, if, if they can do it, I can do it. And Greg Sauters and, and I, in the early days, um, I can remember meeting him and he was in the corner of the Farm Progress Show, had a little tent, his wife and his kids were in there and they had tables and they, they just had the plastic Keaton seed firmers around the outside and got to meet him. And, and uh, I can remember the, the first day I was at the Farm Progress Show, we had a little tent and we were in the backside yeah. of the Farm Progress Show and, and, and watching Greg, you know, take off and do it. And I think just knowing that other farmers had done it and they had been successful and they had good reputations, I said, you know, if they can do it, I, I can do it as well. Mm -hmm. So um, those guys, they, they, all of those guys were, were very encouraging. Ray Rawson mm -hmm. was another one that was very encouraging. And I, I'm sure there's others that I'm probably forgetting to mention. Yeah. But I've, I've had the privilege of, of knowing a lot of the farmer inventor guys that have gone from playing around in the back of the machine shed to, to being a, a household name in, in production agriculture. Yeah. There's someone w watching you and listening to this right now who is finding that encouragement and inspiration that oh, they can do it in the future. This is kind of a, a personal question, but so I, I'm three years old when dad gets no-till farmer. You and my dad must have met fairly early, yeah. knew of you before, you know, I came around later far more. Right. Tell me about first time you and <laughs> you and Frank got, got together in the early days. Well, it was a it was a phone call, and and I had been I was on the Monsanto program uh, that first year, so I wasn't able to come to to your conference. And and you know what, your dad's success story of starting back in the '70s and seeing the vision that that no-till farming should be the future, and wanting to spread that story from one farmer's trials and successes, and then publicize that so other people could read it and learn and then to go on and start the conference, you know, and it's still today, I, I tell everybody, I, I said, it's the Super Bowl of ag conferences. Mm -hmm. And to watch your dad um, put that together and the thinking process that goes in that and being able to attract top speakers from throughout the world to come to this and, and talk. And so um, I remember we, were, we had started the research farm, but I, I hadn't invented anything yet and, and hadn't built anything. And, I was dreaming about people coming for tours, you know, and, 
and uh, throw in 25 or 50 bucks to come for a tour and see all the research. I thought that we would be able to make a little money that way. And so I had called him and visited with him a little bit about, you know, here's some of the research I've done. And so anyway, he was talking to, to one of my employees and, and I kept hearing him say, well, Marion's busy. He, he doesn't have time to talk. And then a little bit later, he's like, well, Marion's busy. And then I said, oh, give me the phone. You know? <laughs> I picked up the phone, I said, this is Marion, and he goes, this is Frank Lesseter, and he, he says, uh, he said, I, would, would you like to come and speak at my conference? And I said, well, I'd, I'd be honored. And he said, uh, he said, well, it'll be next January, it'll be in Spring, uh, St. Louis, and it'll be at the Adams Mark, and he said, um, your topic, and I visited with him, and he said, we need something to occupy their time while they're registering in the morning, and then the conference will actually open at one o'clock. And he said, we want you to do the early bird session. He said, this is new, nobody's ever done it before. And he said, you've got from 10 o'clock until 12 o'clock. And he said, I want your topic to be no-till versus the weather. And so we'd just come off the floods of 1993. Mm -hmm. And I was doing research on tillage and no-till and row spacings and, and it, he'd seen my little booklets, you know, and he, he was pretty excited about it. And, and I said, you know what, I, that would be great. And so I started taking a bunch of, in that time, 35 millimeter slides. And so uh, I can remember at the Adams Market, I'm walking around and I'd seen his picture, you know, in, in, the, in the magazine. And, and I, I saw him in the hall, I walked up to him. I said, hi, I said, I'm, I'm Marion Kelmer. And he goes, God, he said, you're, you're a lot younger than I thought you'd be. <laughs> I said, well, I said I was just in my mid-30s, and he, yeah. he said, you're probably one of the younger speakers that we've got on the program. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I want to see the room. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah. I said, I, I want to see the stadium of the Super Bowl. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah. I, th mm. I said, That's, this is a biggie for me. Yeah. And I said, it'll be the biggest audience I've ever talked to. And I said, you got a one-shot thing. You're either on target or you're not. And um, so we... <laughs> And 35 millimeter slides and the projector was in the back and the room was dark and the the, the lens jumped out and the focus wasn't working mm -hmm. you know and I'm up there in front of a 600 800 people and uh, your dad just said oh struggle through and he takes off to the back <laughs> of the room and I'm up there trying to jibber jabber and then they finally got it going yeah. again but it I did really well and your dad walked up as soon as I was done and he complimented he said you did a nice job and he said in fact he said, we don't normally have people back, but he said, I'm going to make an exception. He said, we'd like you to come speak at next year's conference. Mm -hmm. And so it's always been an honor uh, to come here. But your dad and I, we have very similar kind of personalities and um, the jokester, comedian. And uh, not only do we want to educate, but we want to entertain. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the two of us, we're, we're constantly, every year we get a little better at, yeah. at jabbing each other back and forth. Yeah. So it's, it's a great friendship. Uh, I, I think it's gone both ways. Well, it's, it's an honor and I still get nervous when I go up on stage mm -hmm. and whatever, and you know, whatever I can do to help the farmers. But you know, you'll get far more out of life and you'll be a lot happier if you spend it giving and you ever will by, by taking. And that's one of the great things at this conference. Everybody's willing to share the information. And it's something unique about production agriculture that you won't see in other industries. Mm -hmm. We're willing to stand there with our even competitors that might be a neighbor and share our latest and greatest secrets on how to grow a, a better crop. And it is through that exchange of information that, that makes the American farmer second to none. And our ability to, to move and increase production 
it, it just comes from uh, that learning of, of other farmers. So the, the farmer to farmer thing that you folks promote is the best platform that, that anybody could ever ask for mm -hmm. to move the industry in the right direction. Just one, one other thing that just came to mind when we were talking sure. about the friendships and you yeah. know, long history you've had with our staff, you know, Frank Darrell, oh, um, yeah. I, I, our relationship, you know, the whole, the whole way around. Yeah. Something is unique is how you strike me very loyal. Friendships, oh, yeah. they mean a lot. They're, oh, yeah. they're permanent. Yep. And, you know, look at guys like the farmers that you bring along to work on your... Yeah, the, the uh, farmers that I've met along the way um, that, that help us, either with suggestions on what we can do to make it better, or the guys that actually work the, tr the trade shows. There, there's one guy that I met here at the conference. His name is Alan Berry. And... Uh, Alan's from Nauvoo, and again, Christian, great family man, generations of farming in his area, and uh, he lives by the same beliefs that I do. And um, so I would see him at the conferences, and he called and wanted me to come down and talk to his farmers down there in the Nauvoo area, western Illinois. Got to know him a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And still would see him at the, at the conferences, and then we got to the point where we were gonna go to the Farm Progress Show for the first time and I'm like I, I've got to have people in my booth to answer questions and I want them to be farmers and I had one other neighbor that was willing to go with me and I picked up the phone and I called Alan and I said you know I, I said I don't have a lot of money to pay but I said I will cover your hotel and your meals and uh, but I said I'd be honored if you'd come to the Farm Progress show and and uh, help me talk about my products and stuff like that and Alan's been a, just a great mm -hmm. one. And then, you know, so we just pick up more and more guys that call mm -hmm. in on the phone. So we welcome any of the farmers that enjoy that being at a trade show and talking about farm machinery. Uh, we, we welcome people to, to call us on the phone and say, hey, I'd like to help you work trade shows because uh, it, it, I am the same way when I'm walking at the Farm Progress Show, Louisville National Farm Machine. If I can walk into a booth and there's a farmer standing there yeah. that's used it, and endorses it, I'm pretty confident that I'm gonna be able to go home and have those right. same kind of results. Right. So that, uh, and we still, we have that in our front office. We have that on the manufacturing floor. And we're a rural community and, and we like farm people to help mm -hmm. other farm people. So uh, yeah. that's been, been great. We met a lot, of, a lot of people at this conference that uh, have helped move us down the line yeah. as, as we go. So uh, a special thanks to, to all of the no-till farmer people Mm -hmm. you're, you're a great bunch and you're to be commended. Uh, the conference, I was just telling Daryl that I can see the changing of the guard. Mm -hmm. That those of us that were in this conference from the beginning, and Frank as well, and we learned things that we taught to the younger generation. And now we're kind of starting to move on and the younger generation starting to talk about cover crops and you know, biology and all that, and, and all of the innovation with the electronics in the cab, and that's, that's a whole new group that we think in the new speakers that you're hearing um, that'll be for the next 25 years, mm. will, will be another group of individuals that'll help drive. And I, I always tell everybody at this conference, I, I think is where the, the, the newest innovation, you'll hear about it at this conference, and then three to four years later, it, it just becomes common practice in the country. And I can honestly tell you that uh, I never dreamed <laughs> that I would be where I am today. It's an honor and a pleasure to, to work with the ag industry. And it's also been an honor and a pleasure to be with the Lesseter people and the No-Till Conference. And I can honestly tell you, I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for your support mm -hmm. and the opportunities that you've given me to, 
to stand up in front of a group of people and, and talk about what we're doing. And that's allowed us to increase our confidence that, that uh, the people that buy stuff from us, that, that we're real farmers and uh, that we have something that will value to those people. So it's a great honor and, and I'm, I'm honored that I, I got to be part of this interview. Thanks to Marion for his personal story and also to Ingersoll Tillage for supporting these recordings. For more, visit www.ingersolltillage.com. And a quick shout out to the studio talent here at Lesseter Media, namely Jeff Lazeski and Joe Kinsley. Thanks for joining us for today's sit down with Marion and Calmer Cornheads. Till next time, I'm Mike Lesseter of Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. <laughs>